You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 103, Prosecuting Labor Trafficking, an interview with Alameda Deputy District Attorney Dan Roisman. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, we're back today with another conversation um, that really does highlight something that's very important to us in the work we do at the center, which is um, really engaging all the different partners that we have to help us to combat human trafficking. And we have a guest with us today who, uh, who's really at the forefront of, of looking at this issue from the standpoint of the legal system. Exactly. And I, I first of all, want a big shout out to Alameda County, who um, have been leaders in building the anti-trafficking movement here in California, but predominantly in the area of sex trafficking. And we don't hear much about labor trafficking. So I'm especially pleased to have our guest today, Deputy District Attorney Dan Roisman, who is part of the Consumer and Environmental Protection Division in Alameda District Attorney's Office. So welcome, Dan, to our Ending Human Trafficking podcast. One of the first questions we want to ask you, Dan, is to tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to be in the CEPD. Well, uh, the CEPD is actually my first uh, assignment after a general felony trial assignment. So uh, leading in the DA's office, we start out trying misdemeanors and we start doing preliminary hearings, felony preliminary hearings. Um, and then uh, after a few years of that, when we develop some mastery with uh, the adversarial process, then we move into general felonies, and uh, I had a couple of years trying general felonies, and so then after that, it goes to kind of individual interests um, that that actually, that does t- uh, play some role in what our next assignment is. I expressed an interest in um, labor exploitation and labor trafficking to Nancy O'Malley, the DA, uh, and she has been uh, advocating and initiating, as you know, uh, regarding human trafficking in general, but she uh, is aware of, has been aware of, the importance of of really developing our skills around, and by our, I mean all of law enforcement, but certainly Alameda County in particular, um, uh, developing our skills around detection and enforcement and prosecution of labor trafficking and exploitation. And uh, she and I had a conversation where obviously we had similar attitudes about how this could be done. Um, and uh, really, that conversation came from um, discussions I'd heard her have and, uh, and initiatives that I know that she'd already taken uh, regarding the labor uh, exploitation prosecutions. And... Um, uh, she had a way of going about it uh, that seemed like the really the only way that it, it could be done in a proactive way. Um, and it begins by really working um, from the perspective of the of workplace regulation 
from the starting on that side of of uh, exploitation enforcement. And uh, once we start from that position of of regulating workplace uh, workplace regulation, then we can uh, delve into the kinds of bad acts, bad act acting, and the crimes that are committed, uh, and and those go can go deep, including human trafficking. I would say that's kind of the the bottom of the pit uh, would be a human trafficking case. But there's a, a lot of gradations along the way. And so we're looking at kind of all levels of exploitation. So one of the, the issues with finding human trafficking, whenever I meet with law enforcement, um, trafficking task forces across the country, is that labor trafficking investigations are costly, um, lengthy, difficult to prove. And so it has been, um, I, I don't want to say the word neglected, but it's just been difficult to generate the kind of energy and resources to go after labor trafficking. So that that's really great what um, your DA is doing in leading the way and making that a priority. Um, can you... Just to start off with, can you just give us an example of a labor trafficking um, case that has been investigated in Alameda so we can have something to hang this language on? Sure. Well, <clears throat> I think a, a good example was that uh, we, we got a tip um, about a restaurant um, that uh, over here on International Boulevard in Oakland. And uh, the tip was that the basically alleged that there were uh, folks in the back, the the line cooks, the dishwashers, the people who didn't interact with the with the customers directly, um, were being treated unfairly. And uh, the wait staff were were being paid more, were being paid in checks, were being um, basically counted as employees, while the folks in the back were being paid in cash. Um, the allegations got a little bit more involved in that, but um, when we went in, what we found was that the the folks who were being paid in cash uh, were sleeping upstairs. They were sleeping five to a room. Uh, some of them were sleeping in the same room as a toilet that was not divided from the from where they were sleeping. Hmm. And um, and so I think that's a good example of, of something that, at least when you look at it, it certainly looks an awful lot like labor trafficking. Um, kind of, it has all the red flags. Now, I think it's important to, to realize that one of the biggest barriers to any human trafficking case is to get the... Um, the trafficking victim has to actually see themselves as trafficked. Mm. Um, and that's a, there's a lot that can influence their willingness to, whether or not they're seeing themselves as trafficked, to, to at least admit that to another person. Okay, so, and, so in, the, in this situation where they're sleeping on site, are they paying then room and board? No, they're not. They're it, they're being paid well below minimum wage, um, and they are, um, yeah, they've been paid in cash. They've been paid well below minimum wage. They're not getting paid um, 
anything remotely related to overtime. They're working more than eight-hour days. Okay, uh, okay. I mean, the, the labor conditions are, are tough. Okay, so for them well, to so, well self-identify then is really complicated then. Yes, so, I mean, at that point, you know, we, we go in there, we can interview the victims, and we can, uh, we, can ta- we can try to develop the kind of statements from them that would, uh, that would meet the elements of human trafficking in, uh, in California, involving the levels of coercion needed to indicate forced labor, to indicate the substantial or sustained deprivation of, of personal liberty, um, whether, and, and whether that's being done via force, fraud, or coercion. But as long as the victims either won't admit how they how they were feeling forced because they're embarrassed, I mean, a lot of human trafficking can look an awful lot like domestic violence. So there's all kinds of reasons why a person simply might not admit that they're being um, forced or coerced into into doing what they're doing, um, or whether they just don't see it as coercion. They have it in their mind that it's they went into the this exploitative, severely exploitative relationship as simply a, a rational business transaction. That one way or another, we're not getting the statement from them, and I think that that's that's a reality in in sex trafficking. It's a reality in domestic violence that on first contact with law enforcement a lot of victims simply don't admit, don't, don't describe their relationship with their uh, abuser, with the trafficker, as the one that anyone from the outside can look at it and go, okay, that's obviously a crime, but if you don't have the victim's statement, that's not a case that can be made. So what do you do to get that statement? Well, that's... That's where the that's where the the regulation comes in. Okay. Because in the case of sex trafficking, especially with minors, right? You can we have the authority to take this at risk minor into custody, remove them from the the person who's exploiting them, uh, because we don't let minors run around and be sexually abused. Right. Um, no matter how much they may want to do it, or tell us they want to do it, or tell us that it's the cho- a choice they're making, right? We can legally take custody of them. Okay. But you can't do that with an adult who's just doing a job. I mean, uh, washing dishes, being a line cook, that's not illegal the way that prostitution is. So we can't take them into custody. Um, we have to remove them from the situation in other ways. And the workplace regulation laws that we use in these exploitation prosecutions allow us to interfere in the exploitative relationship that we find the the victims in. And we do that by, I mean, effectively shutting down the business. We can, we can certainly arrest their exploiters for the payroll tax fraud that they're committing, for the workers' compensation fraud that they're committing, potentially for the wage theft, if we can prove that. Um, there's a number of crimes along the way that we can show that they've committed that don't require the victim's 
articulating the necessary elements to prove trafficking. And given time, as we develop the relationships with the victims, potentially we can end up eliciting the information that we need to actually prove trafficking. But in the meantime, we can get them free of the situation they're in. We can connect them with the services that they obviously are in need of, make sure that they're in contact with their family, for example, um, make sure that they feel free to you know, have their documents to go home if they want, whatever that is. Um, and it, in the end, giving them that opportunity can also pretty substantially interfere with our uh, with our prosecutions, because uh, it's you know in, in the case of sex trafficking, you might recover a minor who's in another state, and you send her home to her family back in Alabama or wherever the person's from, and that becomes a hard a hard person to connect with because they're two thousand miles away. Here, we potentially, most likely, they're going back if they're leaving. They're going to go back to another country, right? Because labor trafficking victims are very rarely from the United States. So that's just a that's just a reality. That's just that's a hurdle that we that we're that we're faced with and and so we some of it has to do with uh redefining success that you the point is that when we when we see trafficking we don't we're not I wouldn't say we're liberal about defining things as trafficking, but we recognize that trafficking falls on a continuum of of ex- exploitation. Okay. And so what we're here to do is is go after exploitation and where we can make a trafficking case, then that's what we'll do. I love how you put that redefining success because I would think from a prosecutor's perspective getting convictions is really a significant marker of success. So if you have to give that up because um, someone leaves and isn't there to testify, you, at the end of the day, have still literally rescued someone from that exploitation. So there isn't any, any um, way to measure that at this point in our, in our society. So I just want to say thank you, and I am... Uh, encouraged and inspired by your approach to this and the idea of redefining success. I'm going to quote you on that just so you know. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, I think there's another aspect to, to, to that, which is that, um, I don't know if I would say we're giving up convictions because we are, we are prosecuting, uh, the, the exploiters for crimes. They're just not for necessarily for human trafficking, but there's, um, the other aspect of, about this is that, in the context of labor trafficking, part of the reason, or one thing that helps uh, labor trafficking succeed is that they can outcompete their uh, better acting, uh, the, the better acting employers in the, in the marketplace because their labor costs are cheaper, because they're not paying workers' compensation insurance, because they're not paying payroll taxes. And so to the extent we can remove those bad actors from the marketplace, then the marketplace gets filled up with the people who are, who are doing business the right way. And, uh, and also creates a, we would hope at least, a, a marketplace that's more resilient against exploitative labor practices because 
the people who work in that marketplace get to know each other. They move around. They can more readily identify when somebody is, uh, the, the, the bad actors potentially stand out more, are easier to identify, and, uh, and will be easier to enforce in the future. So that unfair competitive edge then becomes a good motivator for um, good actors um, to be more involved in making sure that the community of workers that they draw their, their workers from understand when they're being victimized so that they'll be able to um, identify, self-identify? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, so, and that's a big part of what I've been doing since I've had this assignment, um, reaching out to community groups, um, reaching out to Asian Health Services um, with uh, Asian Pacific Islander Legal Outreach, Asian Law Caucus. I've uh, been talking to um, the Central Legal, uh, East Bay Community Law Center, uh, Street Level Health is a, is a community organizing group in uh, the Fruitvale that organizes day laborers. Um, groups like this, among many others, um, that we have been working on connecting with, um, making sure that, that they're aware that we are in a position to, to address, from a criminal perspective, the kinds of unfair labor practices, exploitative labor practices, uh, with an eye toward human trafficking, and with an eye toward uh, ultimately benefiting the victim. That's, that benefiting the victim is much more important to us than long jail terms, uh, long prison terms. We uh, Certainly, we think that people who are committing human trafficking need to go to prison, but um, that's not necessarily the priority for the victim. The victim wants to see their family. They want to talk to their family. They want to be free to earn uh, a living wage. They want to be free to come and go as they please. Um, and they, they don't want to be a target for the trafficker or their networks. And so by letting the community know and these community groups know that our goal is to, is to protect and help the victims, and that prosecution is as a way of getting justice for the victims really has that as its main priority that we then create a create a community in a broader perspective a, a county of of collaboration where they know that they can come to us with the um with those cases, with the with their clients who come in as as direct service providers, as uh, employment and immigration legal service providers, they can come to us with their clients who are experiencing uh, that kind of exploitation. So when I I hear you talking about um, repa- repatriation or a reunification of families, that this is a really high priority for these kinds of situations. Um, how do you get the resources if you don't get the prosecution, uh, if you can't build the case around human trafficking? Because we understand the Trafficking Victims Protection Act offers the T visa. So what happens if it's not a human trafficking case? Well, the, I think the reality is that there are a lot of T visas that are um, actually being issued without, uh, without law enforcement being involved at all. Um, and... 
uh, we're trying to m- make sure we've bridged that gap that 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 if a case is coming in where if a person's seeking direct services from from a non governmental organization that includes uh, visa help and they're applying for a t visa we're trying to make sure that we've made the connection with that uh, legal clinic that's providing that immigration assistance, make sure that they know we're here, they need to let us know that we can help as well. Um, but uh, as I understand it from talking, and I'm, I'm not an immigration lawyer, but as I understand it from talking to the immigration lawyers from these law clinics, that they have and do proceed with T-Visas whether or not law enforcement's involved. Okay, um, yes, yes. And so earlier you mentioned the red flag. So if someone is doing um, a community clinic or say legal clinic and they were looking for the constellation of circumstances that would lead them to contact your office, what would be those red flags? Well, uh, certainly the big ones are people holding documents, people unable to contact uh, family, make phone calls, or otherwise communicate with um, people not in their workplace without being monitored by their employer in some way, um, or uh, people who have to live wherever they're, where they're working uh, if they don't have an option for something else, and uh, living conditions that seem overcrowded. Um, people who are, are doing something that they don't... Uh, they didn't expect to do uh, when they came to the area to work. Um, as a as an outside observer, you know these things end up looking a lot like um, a lot like domestic violence. You have people who are uh, who seem overly submissive, who uh, who have unexplained injuries, who who seem fearful, who. Um, you know, who are having trouble speaking with other people without, without the, the trafficker who, or in this case, the, that person would look like the employer, uh, interceding and, and uh, controlling that communication. Okay, so, so if you're talking to um, folks in another county where they aren't using this particular strategy, um, and they're still trying to just do this straight as a labor trafficking case uh, that's very difficult to to put together, what would you recommend that they do to adjust to use the same pattern that you're using? I would say that, that the key here is to look at this as a workers' compensation and, uh, and payroll tax issue. So most counties have uh, some kind of relationship with the Department of Insurance, and the Department of Insurance certainly is making cases all the time against people who um, who potentially don't have uh, workers' compensation. And they have a list of industries where, where there seems to be very low rates of, of workers' compensa- compensation insurance enrollment. And those industries track the industries that we worry most about labor trafficking, because as, as my boss, Larry Blazer, says about this, this is Larry Blazer runs Consumer Environmental Protection Division. Mm-hmm. And as he says, if people who are cheating in one place are going to cheat in lots of places. Oh. So, so the, 
the fact that somebody doesn't have workers' compensation insurance, although I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it's a red flag, it's certainly a good place to start if you're trying to be proactive. Because the if you're not going to be proactive about labor trafficking, you're really just waiting for a citizen who you can do lots of outreach to, to citizens to, to have them look for red flags. But from a law enforcement perspective, we try to initiate a little bit more than that. And we don't want to just wait for the, for the call for service. We don't want to just wait for, for something to land in our lap. We want to be out there trying to find the bad guys. And if you start by looking at workers' compensation insurance, then sure, there's going to be a lot of workers' compensation insurance cases where that's all there is. Somebody doesn't have workers' compensation insurance. It's a misdemeanor. There's a fine. That's the end of that. But but the California Department of Insurance has these, you know, they're doing these investigations all the time. And and when you look at, at how bad these actors can get, there are going to be these cases where things are, are really bad. The conditions for the employees are really bad. And, and we can shut down those businesses. We can build those relationships with those employees at that point and start to help them to articulate, um, help them to come to grips with the, how bad their situation was, however much they decided that they could live with it, um, and, then, and then from there build the trafficking case. So then... I think it, it, it's fair to say that in addition to that, reaching out to these direct service providers is also a good place to start looking. Okay. Because those direct service providers are likely to be the first points of contact for victims who will identify as victims. Right? When you find them in the market in the workplace, they're working. They they have they they actually are getting paid most of them, if not nearly enough, and they've decided they're going to live with whatever the the problems are with their living situation, with their workplace situation, however abusive or exploitative it is, they've decided that the money in the hand is, is worth it. And when you find them in that situation, then the main point is, uh, you know, stop the employment situation, stop that exploitative situation. From the direct service providers, those folks are, they have contact with people who, who are ready potentially are ready to identify as victims and, and have come to grips with how bad things got with their employer and the ways that they were exploited and abused. So building those relationships so that, that, so that uh, those referrals can happen. Okay, so I know how some of my listeners are going to respond to this. They're going to say, okay, so that means then that when I call the 888 number, um, it's not going to work in this circumstance because it's not a direct, we're going to go rescue someone who's looking to be rescued. Um, so who do we call? Who do we call if we want it to be seen from um, the perspective that you're looking at it from? Well, I, I think that, I don't think it's true that you, that, that uh, the 888 number is not the right number to call because they, um, they're not just contacting law enforcement. And some, to some degree, it's a question of how bad, uh, I guess, how immediate is the danger for the, for the person that we're observing, right? If, if you're seeing somebody, you think there's some red flags, you think this seems like it's a potential trafficking situation, and you dial the 888 number, 
if the person's in immediate danger, right, then right. really you should have dialed 911. Right. right. If the person's in the middle of getting beaten. Um, or if they look like they're in, you've got like a kidnapping in process or something right. like that. Somebody's uh, locked behind a, uh, a gate and they're yelling for help. All right. I mean, that's a 911 call. Right. If you see a situation that looks bad, uh, but it's not the kind of immediate danger that would make you want to call 911 and you call the 888 number, the, the National Human Trafficking Resource Center, they don't just have lists of law enforcement agencies. They have direct service providers as well. And based on what they're seeing, they'll contact whoever seems like they're appropriate or, all, or everyone who seems like they're appropriate. Um, and, and that becomes a community, a local community of law enforcement and resource providers that have some open communications with each other about what is the appropriate immediate response. And they can start looking at that location. They can send people out to try to make contact with the victim. They can put officers at the scene to at least observe the situation. They can, from my perspective, I can, I can look up the business and check to see if they have workers' compensation insurance and, and employment uh, and, and payroll taxes. And based on that, we can write search warrants. There are, there's definitely action that can be taken. It doesn't mean that we're going to run out and, and swoop somebody up, but we can get things going that, that will, in short order, lead to the person being able to get free. And that is what the victim-centered approach is all about, Dan, right? Right, right, so, absolutely. Wow. Okay, so I'm pretty sure that this conversation is just getting started, but we have like two minutes left so uh, okay. you have a 60-second, say, the most important thing you want listeners to understand about how we need to adjust um, rescuing labor trafficking victims in America. Well, I think the most important thing is to realize that it's stopping the exploitative relationship in whatever efficient way we can, whether that means that we go and make contact with the victim and help them get away. That's kind of an immediate law enforcement response, uh, which victims may not be ready for. But we can also go in from these workplace regulation perspectives, and we can take the approach that they took with Al Capone, for example. Again, another point that my boss, Larry Blazer, makes, that even if we can't make a labor trafficking case, because the victim's not ready to talk about it that way. We can still, the law provides the sufficient workplace regulation, crimes that are committed in the workplace that are used by exploitative employers. We can get those exploitative employers on things like work, workers' compensation insurance fraud, payroll tax evasion, and shut down the employment situation that this victim has fallen victim to and uh, provide the way out that they need. Uh, and, and it's simply making that connection for them to have a way out, putting them in a situation where they're, the 
exploiter is no longer able to exploit them because we've come after them even for these regulatory crimes that is ultimately can and, and does result in, in more free victims. And that is going to be the way we're going to redefine success, Dan. I just want to thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed on our podcast today. You've given us a lot to think about, and I'm sure we're going to be coming back and asking you more questions. Great. Well, and thank you, Dan. I so appreciate your wisdom. And Sandy, listening to Dan talk, I'm just uh, really struck by how complex the situation is and how many different things, even in from a standpoint of a DA's office that they have to consider, but also the opportunities that are there to think about things a little differently than how they've been thought about before. And that's certainly uh, always part of our effort here is to uh, study the issues so we can be a voice and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And we're so glad that you have come along for us, come along with us on that journey, rather. And if you have a comment or question about anything you've heard on this episode, I hope you'll take a moment to reach out to us. Our email address is gcwj at vanguard.edu, and that stands for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. You can also reach us by phone, 714-966-6360. And Sandy, we'll be back again in two weeks with another episode, and, uh, and I know we'll be talking to Dan again soon, too. All right. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Thanks Dan. Take care.